Matthew 24. Let's start by reading the first nine verses of this passage. It runs for the two chapters. Chapter 24 and 25 is often called the Olivet Discourse because it's a discourse, a teaching session done uh, on the Mount of Olives. So it's called the Olivet Discourse. But I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. And by the way, this is early Thursday afternoon, the day before the crucifixion. This is April 2nd, 33 AD, if Dr. Honer's chronology is right. So keep that in mind. The Lord is looking at the prize. He's thinking about his ultimate victory, even as he knows um, he's a day away from the crucifixion. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away. When his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him, and he said to them, they're very impressed by the buildings, and they were very impressive. Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, they've walked across the Kidron Valley due east from the Temple Mount on top of the slopes of the Mount of Olives, where also the Garden of Gethsemane is located, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, then, when will these things happen, the destruction of the temple in the end times? And what will be the sign of your coming in power and glory to bring in the kingdom and the end of the age? Now that phrase, the end of the age, I use the acronym TEOTA, T-E-O-T-A, the end of the age, has a very precise meaning. We're going to emphasize that's the question they asked. That's what they asked him to talk about. That's what he's going to talk about. And you have to keep that in mind as you look at these two chapters. And Jesus answered and said to them, First, let me give you warnings about false flags and false alarms. See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, or I directly represent the Christ, they might say, and mislead many. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not frightened. God's in control. He's sovereign. He knows what's going on. Everything's on schedule. Well, these things must take place. They're part of the deal. But that's not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And in various places, there'll be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then, during that period, they'll deliver you to tribulation, philipsis. And will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name, who and what I am. We're looking at the life of Christ A through Z. We come to letter V, which stands for vision of victory. Um, and we're going to look at basically the contents of Revelation 6 through 19 summed up in two chapters. That's basically what you've got. You basically got uh, Daniel 7, 8, and 9, much of that uh, actually in just two chapters where Jesus is going to talk about um, his second advent, his coming in power and glory. But before we dive into this very important, very strategic passage, let's pray for our teachability to the Word of God and also for those who protect and serve us, including our active military, peace officers, firefighters. And uh, Henry VIII, I mean, uh, Henry Ward, would you would you pray for us in that direction? Preview of coming attractions, uh, we're going to kind of get off, or we'll conclude the life of Christ 
A through Z in just a couple of weeks, and we'll do some special studies before we go into another uh, intense study. Uh, next week, we're going to look at the POGs, the Purpose, Objectives, and Goals of TBF. And if you look at the very back of this study, set of study notes here, I, I think I've got in your version, toward the end there, normally where I'd have uh, take this to heart, but I didn't have room to put that heading. Uh, I think I put three key questions and three core needs uh, we're going to deal with that next week in connection with the purpose, objectives, and goals of Tanglewood Bible Fellowship. So, Lord willing, we'll look at that next week. Then, uh, Lord willing and weather permitting, we'll look at letters W, X, then Y, and Z. And then we'll look at several uh, individual studies. What TBFers need to know about God, um, the attributes of God, uh, the purpose of God, the will of God, little simple subjects like that we'll summarize in one message. Then what you need to know about Islam, what you need to know about Jehovah's Witnesses, what you need to know about Mormonism, what you need to know about Judaism. The Judaism in the New Testament isn't the Judaism that has existed in the aftermath of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. It's a different form of the same kind of thing, but it's different, and a lot of Christians don't know that. Then, Lord willing... The day after my birthday, the day after Olga's birthday, uh, we'll look at what TBFers need to know about the so-called lost gospels. They actually were never lost, uh, and uh, they have good reason not to be in your New Testament, but you'll hear, especially at Easter time, the National Geographic Channel will do a special about the Gospel of Judas or the Gospel of Thomas, and we'll talk about that, what that is. And then, Lord willing, um, late in March, we will start a study of the life of Joseph I know some of you are going to say, what well, you just did that. I went to my notes. I did it in 1992. <laughs> so it doesn't seem that long ago, but I mean, it's been a while. So I, I love that. I love that story. You don't think the sovereignty of God is, is practical? You don't think prophecy is practical? We're going to try to show you prophecy is practical today. Sovereignty of God is also practical. Let's warm up our capacity for abstract thought, shall we? According to your resume, and I don't believe in past lives, by the way. It's just a joke. According to your resume, you were an Egyptian pharaoh in a past life. But my question is, have you updated your leadership skills since then? I mean, that's impressive, but that was a long time ago. My sources tell me you're not happy with your job. This reminds me of a lot of college students the first week of uh, the semester, which is starting next week. My sources tell me you're not happy with your job. So we've decided to forget all about productivity. We're not going to think about profits. And we're going to start making your happiness our number one priority. <laughs> Teams don't do that. Businesses don't do that. Churches don't do that. My, my happiness is not the number one priority of this church. I can, I can tell you for sure. You know, now joy is more, ex, more, uh, profound than happiness. Happiness is based on your circumstances. Happiness is when you have happy, uh, pleasant circumstances. You cannot be happy with a migraine headache by definition. You can't have joy. Joy is not necessarily ecstatics. It's, it's can't, Tim, it's a range from stability to ecstatics based on your emotional pattern and your circumstances. It's more profound than um, happiness. So uh, I think I'm going to try to show that to my um, communication class on Thursday after they get over the shock of Tuesday's first class meeting. And then this one was interesting. He had got the boss with his um, coffee cup and his hand in his pocket talking to somebody from a, probably another company or something. And the boss 
says, my staff just left for a 10-day stress management retreat. I'm feeling more relaxed already. <laughs> Get them out of town, man. It's great. Yeah, looking at the um, Life of Christ A through Z, one Savior, four Gospels, 26 major events. We're not going to survey all 26 as we start today, although we will try to do that the very last week as we finish this series. But, uh, you know, when you look at this passage, Matthew 24, 25, as I say, is typically called the Olivet Discourse, the dis- teaching discourse from the Mount of Olives about the second advent. But I like to call it the other Sermon on the Mount. I mean, everybody's heard of that Sermon on the Mount, right, Kitty? But this is another sermon on another mount. Or you might call it the Sermon on the Other Mount. Uh, now, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, you need to know where that is so you can find it, was, was given by the Lord in Galilee, um, toward the early phases and through most of his Galilean ministry. He taught that message many times. The message we're going to look at today, the discourse we're going to look at today, is taught on a mountain, not in the northern region, but in the southern region of Judea, just uh, just east of Jerusalem. So if you put this on a map, that's Galilee. That's where the Sermon on the Mount was given. That's Judea. That's where the Olivet Discourse was given. And specifically, the uh, Sermon on the Mount was given somewhere on the slopes of Mount Maron that go down into the... Sea of Galilee, whereas the uh, Olivet Discourse is given on the Mount of Olives, right? Early in the ministry, the day before the crucifixion. That, that's really pretty striking for me to realize the Lord is wanting to lay this out, knowing what he's about to, to deal with here. Now, uh, rather than surveying all of the letters, let's just kind of start from the uh, the crisis point, you might say. You know, you look at the life of Christ, A through Z, and it has two basic facets. The first aspect is Jesus is getting the word out about himself as widely as possible, especially to the nation of Israel. They had 2,000 years of prophetic uh, preparation, uh, and that draws large crowds, and he's doing big miracles and preaching the basic uh, Sermon on the Mount content as discipleship truth for believers and um, pre-evangelism for unbelievers. And that's going pretty good until O and P happens. And O stands for opposition offered. The leaders of institutional Judaism have to explain Jesus away. Otherwise, they got to close up shop and embrace him as Savior and Lord. And they don't want to do that. So what do they do? Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. He does miracles, but only by the power of Satan. The official party line of institutional Judaism was that Jesus was not the Christ. He was, of anything, the Antichrist. He wasn't a spirit-controlled Messiah. He was a satanically-controlled false prophet. And after that, the whole tenor of the ministry changes. The crowds start to scatter. Jesus does less big public miracles, and he starts preparing the disciples to carry on after his resurrection and ascension. And this Olivet Discourse is a big part of that because you can't really serve Christ stably in the now if you don't know about and rest in what we are looking forward to in the future. So that's the big uh, pivot point. And after that, we look at letters. Here's our map. There's Galilee, the northern region, Judea, the southern region. Let's walk through the last several letters there. Right after the OP incident where Jesus is charged with being a false prophet, he takes his disciples outside of Jewish territory to a Gentile area, a resort city, 
called Caesarea Philippi. We'll be there next May, this May, actually, right? And he asked some questions. What's the Gallup poll saying about me now? Who do men say that I am now that the leaders are saying I'm satanically possessed? And they're still saying nice things, but they're not saying he's the Christ. And then he says, who do you say that I am? You know what the leaders are saying. Who do you say that I am? And what does Peter say, speaking for the group except for Judas? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You got it, got it right. And right after that, Jesus in our revelation, or reality revealed, Jesus validates who he is to Peter, James, and John at the transfiguration event. S stands for stoning stopped. Jesus goes to Jerusalem, even though it's dangerous now for him to get anywhere near where the leaders with all the power are saying he's a satanically possessed false prophet, which is a capital crime under the Old Testament law. But on December, before the April crucifixion, Jesus goes to Hanukkah, which is a Jewish patriotic military holiday. It's not even mandated in the Old Testament. It was established after the end of the Old Testament, before the New Testament period. And he claims to be God, I and the Father are one, and they try to stone him for that. T stands for tomb traumatized. Just a few weeks before the final week, Jesus goes and raises Lazarus from the dead. U, upset, uh, unusual upset. Jesus has to cleanse the temple because the religious leaders who are too righteous to accept Jesus are unrighteously getting rich by a corrupt religious system that, that uh, rips people off. And then now we're going to look at V, vision of victory. And we're in and around Jerusalem from now on because we're just east of Jerusalem in V. W, washing and wisdom, the upper room discourse that, this, that evening after the discourse and just before they go to Gethsemane and Jesus is arrested. XY, expiatory execution. Yes, yeah, Jesus did rise from the dead and then Zion, ascension from Zion. Uh, actually, Mount of Olives just outside of Zion. But today we're in Matthew 24, 25. We're going to survey this very important passage. And it breaks down to three parts. We've got an introduction. Let's call that orientation. Uh, essence, or the body. And then an application. This is all about application. And uh, pra- prophecy is practical. Don't let anybody tell you it is not. But let me ask you a question before we dive into this survey. Why would we spend all this time? I mean, we've spent more than 26 weeks looking at the life of somebody who died 2,000 years ago. I mean, why would we do that? Well... I think to ask that question here is to answer it, at least I hope so. But yeah, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. He's the incarnation of God in human form. Uh, In the beginning was the Word, title for Jesus. The Word was with God the Father, was a separate person from God the Father, fellowshipping with God the Father before the beginning. The Word was God. He wasn't God the Father. He was deity. He was co-equal, co-eternal, second person of the ontological trinity. And this passage ends by saying the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what Christmas is all about. The babe in that manger was the God-man Savior, right? So Jesus is the living Word. He's the life. He's the light. He's the issue. He's the issuer of eternal life. If you'd like to have blessed life after death, and we're all going to die, so that should be of interest to us, you got to go to Jesus for it. you got to believe in Jesus for it. It's the only way. And this applies to no matter how bad you are, how good you've tried to be, doesn't matter what color, country, culture, generation, denomination, he's the solution. Whosoever believes in the Son has, in a better 
translation is everlasting life. God's eternal from everlasting to everlasting. We have everlasting life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see that kind of life, but the wrath of God abides on him. We're, we're in a mess. We're in trouble. Okay, world's falling apart. We emphasized that last week. Each one of us contribute to that. At our worst, we break our own standards, much less God's. And Scripture says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But don't stop there. That's Romans 6.23. Because what does the rest of the verse say? Wages of sin is death, comma, but, conjunction of contrast, the gift. And that's a different word than the regular word for gift in the Greek, Tim. That's the free gift. This is not something you do for God. It's something Jesus has done for you. It's something you receive as a gift. Uh, Wages of sin is death. Uh, I should say, um, help me. What's, how does Romans 6.23 start? Uh, the, yeah, Wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life or everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And here's the gospel. The gospel is relevant to everybody, even millennials that only want to look at telephones their whole life, you know, because they're mortal and eventually going to figure that out. And the good news is because Jesus died for our sins, we don't have to die in our sins. And we we start in them and we make it actually worse. You know, we don't start sinning uh, and become sinners. We sin because we're sinners. <laughs> That's just who we is. But because Christ died for us and God the Father loved us enough to send him to die for us, we don't have to die in our sins, but he's not dead anymore, okay? A dead Savior can't get you from Oklahoma to heaven. A risen Savior is the only one who can, and that's the one you want to trust in. There's a lot of counterfeits out there, and Satan is big and counterfeit. By the way, we're going to talk about the Antichrist in a minute. The word anti, we call it anti in English. It's a preposition, or it can be a prefix in Greek words. Does it just mean against? And if somebody's anti-Trump or anti-Hillary, that means they're against Hillary, they're against Trump. We know what that means. That's why we use it in English. But the Greek term anti means against and or instead of. So the Antichrist, Ron, is not just against God's program. He's trying to be a substitute Christ, okay? Satan is all about counterfeiting, but there's only one Savior. There's no other name under heaven given among men where we must be saved. And this is, if the, if the good news can get any gooder, uh, Jesus does all the work and we receive it through faith. Calvin said it's the empty hand that receives the merits of a savior. But to the one who does not work, preachers want you to jump through hoops, sign cards, join things, quit things. I do too. I, you don't necessarily have to sign cards. Uh, but if you do, give me your credit card number and that little three-digit number on the back and the expiration dates. I, I can use it. Uh, but we all want you to do good stuff. That's the effect of salvation, but that's not the root. And if you kind of front-load it with that, people get confused. John, Paul says, but the one who does not work, he's not trying to do something to earn salvation, but who believes active receptive trust in Christ who justifies the ungodly. Why is Christ the one who justifies the ungodly? Any ideas? Use the visual aid if you need it. Perfect righteous life, substitutionary atoning sacrifice, it is finished, paid in full when he's finished that work, validated by that. That's pretty good. That's all you got. That's all you need. The one who does not work but who believes in Christ, who justifies the ungodly, and you qualify, 
that person who believes faith is reckoned by God as righteousness. Or as John 1, 12 says, but as many as received him, color, country, and culture, Nicodemus, one with the well, doesn't matter. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God, children of God, to those who believe in his name. It's active, receptive trust. If you've never received Christ, you can do it right where you sit. It's a dramatic act, but it doesn't have to be a long, a long drawn-out process, although it always is. When you hear and respond, guess what? That's just like jumping over the goal line after a 99-yard touchdown drive. God's been doing all kinds of stuff to give you the inputs you need to see and, and believe. But here's our passage today. Well, it was a long introduction. Uh, Matthew 24, 25. So we're going to survey this. It's the book of Revelation on steroids, you might say. And let's start with the introduction or the, uh, I call it the orientation. Very important. There's so much cool stuff in here. Most people jump over the first couple of verses. Big mistake. This is the day before the crucifixion. The setting, verse 1, Jesus came out from interacting with the Jewish leaders in the temple precincts and was going away to pray in the Mount of Olives. His disciples came up and were saying, look at these gigantic buildings. And it was a beautiful sight. And we're going to see some of that uh, in Jerusalem, what's left of it. The western wall, the wailing wall, is part of the retaining wall around this temple um, precinct back in those days. And he said to them, hey, it's all going to go. It's all coming down. Now, don't get too enamored with buildings or visible things. Everything that's visible is going to go away, right? Uh, and so they, so he walks to the Mount of Olives with them. They've left Jerusalem proper. They're about half a mile away, due east. The disciples came to him privately. It's just them and him. So he's talking to them as believers and saying, hey, tell us when these things are going to happen. Ultimately, when the temple's going down, we know the temple's going down. The end times with the uh, rise of Jacob's trouble before the glorious appearing of you, the Messiah, when's that going to happen? Tell us when these things are going to happen, and what will be the sign? What's it going to look like? What's the events going to look like leading to your coming and to the end of the age? Okay, T-E-O-T-A, the end of the age. Jewish thinkers were taught in the day of Jesus, they were living in what they called the present age, looking forward to the age to come, the reign of the Messiah. Okay, But between the present age in the age of the Messiah, there'd be something called Jacob's trouble, the time of Jacob's trouble, the Jewish trouble. And today we'd call that the tribulation climaxed by the Antichrist, or by the uh, second coming of Christ, okay? Kind of the rise and fall of the Antichrist for a short period of intense persecution in which the world's going to get so messed up it's beyond human remedy, although the Antichrist is going to claim to be able to fix everything. And then the Messiah is going to come in glory and power and put down the forces arrayed against God and set up the age to come. So they're talking about what's going to be the direct lead up to you coming in glory and power and taking over, right? So very important you see that. Boom. Now, we're reading this from a New Testament lens. And you might say, well, I thought Matthew was in New Testament. It sure is. But in this case, it's talking about events that happened right there, right? The day before the crucifixion. And so... We, you know, we're out here. We've got 2,000 years of church history to kind of look back at that. And we've got slightly different terminology because we've had more information. Uh, the church age was something not revealed in the Old Testament. And they're not asking about the church age or the rapture. They're asking about what we'd call the tribulation and the second advent. The end of the age is the what we would call the tribulation and the second advent. 
So let me kind of change that slide just a touch. And T-E-O-T-A is the end of the age. It's the time of Jacob's trouble and the appearing of the Messiah and power and glory from heaven to set up the age to come. That's the, the mindset, and that's the question they're asking. And that's where the ball was pitched. And when you play baseball that's outside, you hit it to the opposite field. If you try to pull an outside fastball, you'll never catch up with it, right? And as a pitcher, I always try to pitch as, as tight as possible and as low as possible that I could get strikes called on unless you had um, certain people who were just really good at hitting inside fastballs, which most people aren't, right? Now, you might say, well, how does this relate to the rapture we looked at last week? Um, it doesn't. No, it does. It does relate. But they've asked him about the end of the age. The end of the age is the intense period, we know from Daniel, of seven years leading to the Messiah coming out of heaven and putting the earth out of his misery and setting up the kingdom. That's what they're asking about. That's what he's going to talk about. Right? Uh, the church age is something they don't know about yet, so he doesn't go there. And the rapture ends the church age, and so he just doesn't go there. He's just not dealing with that because that's not what they ask, and they don't really have the capacity to understand that. So all we said last week about the differences between the rapture and second advent, none of that's changed. And the rapture didn't happen last week. Wednesday night, I thought it might. It kind of looked like there was a partial rapture. Me, Ron, and James were the only ones up here. I thought, man, we, we missed it. Maybe that partial rapture theory that only the really spiritual ones get raptured, uh, not all believers. None of that's changed. But they're looking and asking about the end of the age, the tribulation, the second advent. So that's what he's going to talk about. Okay? So let's, with that in mind, let's look at the essence of this, or the body of this, uh, all of that discourse, or the other Sermon on the Mount, and look first at verses 4 through 6. Warnings about false alarms and pseudo-saviors. Jesus said, uh, just in general, uh, for those who are going to be in that period, there's going to be a lot of people, including the Antichrist, who will be win the prize, claiming to be the solution, claiming to have the answers. See to it and no one misleads you. For many will come in my name even, claiming to... I mean, right now we got politicians wrapping themselves up in uh, being Christ-like and certain things being immoral. Anybody read the book of Nehemiah recently? Read the book of Nehemiah. Then let's talk about walls. Whether or not the wall down south is a good idea or not, to say walls are immoral, you have a problem with Nehemiah. I think he was all for the walls, you know. So that's just me, okay? I don't care about politics, as you can probably tell. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. They'll just flat out claim to be the answer. Uh, don't listen to them. The second event of Christ will not be Jesus just walking up with sandals, claiming you know, at, a, at a podium or something, making a speech. It's going to be visible, undeniable, unbelievable, but true, supernatural, overwhelming shock. You've heard of shock and awe as a military strategy? There's going to be the ultimate shock and awe at the second advent of Christ. There'll be nobody needing to convince that he's the right one. But in the lead-up to that, that's going to happen. You're hearing about wars and rumors of wars. Um, see that you're not frightened as if God's out of control or he doesn't know what's going on or is it sleep at the switch. But these things must take place. They're part of the plan. And yet this is not the end. Then we have a short description of the end of the age. Nation will rise against nation. Especially in the, during the first half before the Antichrist kind of consolidates all of that and for the last half of the seven years, has effective control, not absolute, but effective control over the whole world. 
But the lead up to that, nation will rise against nation, kingdom and kingdom against kingdom. In various places, there'll be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Birth pangs are result in something good at the end. All this is going to get us to the second advent and the kingdom. Um, then they will deliver you, referring to the apostles as representative believers, but putting them in that setting. It's kind of a prophetic way of describing something to a present audience about what's going to happen in the future. Boom, boom. Uh, and they're going to kill you, uh, believers, those who identify with Christ. And you're going to be hated by all nations because of my name. So don't worry about being politically correct because it's only going to get worse. And um, it's not part of our job description, which I look like a world. At that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Many peoples will love to be cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Uh, now, that's easy to read soteriology there. I don't think so. If you read the rest of the discourse, he's saying the believers that despite the persecution and the famine and the problems, and many millions of believers, no doubt, will be martyred during the tribulation. But believers who hold on, who survive physically the seven-year tribulation, are going to be saved from being persecuted and hunted by the second advent of Christ, and they will physically enter the kingdom in their physical bodies. He talk, develops that theme starting right there as we go through this. I think you'll see it. Now also notice, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the nations, and then the end will come. Why, why would God let it last seven years with the last half being really, really extra bad? Why not just do seven months? It's going to take that long to get the word out. And then at the very end, right before the second advent, I wish we had more time, Revelation 14, we have an angel in heaven preaching the everlasting gospel. So nobody will be able to say, we didn't know. They'll just openly reject it. There will, there'll be no atheist very far into the tribulation. It'll be very obvious there's a supernatural battle going on here and people are going to flat choose sides for and against the real God who's visibly manifesting himself through the seals, the bowls, and the judgment kind of, um, uh, trumpet judgment kind of thing. But look at verse uh, 15 through 31. This is interesting. After talking about beware of false alarms and false prophets, let me give you a brief description of what's going to go on here just before I come back in power and glory. Then he talks about the glory, let's put that in quotes, of the Antichrist. Anti means against and instead of verses 15 through 26, and then he talks about his own glory, what he's going to look like in the second advent. It'll be unmistakable. It'll be undeniable, okay? In verses 27 through 31, the glory of the Christ. So let's look at the glory of the Antichrist. Put quotes on that. Therefore, let's see what else we got there. Maybe that might be good. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, what is that? How much time you got? Since we don't have much, it's the desecration of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem by the Antichrist in the middle of the tribulation. That, that's what it is. And you read about it in Daniel, in Revelation, and Second Thessalonians. When, when believers see the Antichrist desecrate the temple in Jerusalem and basically tell the world to worship him, God ain't government. We're living in a uh, global system where people want to worship their government. And they want one big government. God ain't government. God's bigger than that. 
God's not an American. He's not even a Republican. He's bigger than that. But Antichrist is going to be the ultimate big government uh, person. Um, he says, when you see that, you are now in the second half of the seven-year trib. It's, you think, think it couldn't get any worse. It's going to get much worse, especially for believers. So he says, this is not a time to, to do a frontal assault. Those who are in Judea, anywhere near Jerusalem, if you're a believer, get as far away from civilization as possible. Whoever's on the housetop must not go down and get anything out of the house. Don't get your pictures. Don't get your dog. Just get out of town. Whoever's in the field must turn back, but should not turn back and get his cloak. But watch this. People take stuff out of the Bible out of context so, so often. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies. I've heard people quote that, stop, and make some kind of a point that doesn't make sense. What's he talking about in context? When, if you, if you're a believer and you find yourself in the second half of the tribulation where the Antichrist has effective control of the world and he's desecrated the Jewish temple, get as far away from civilization, then you become a survivalist. <laughs> right. Then you get out of the way for three and a half years. And he says, what are those who are pregnant and those who nurse babies? Why? Because it's going to be hard to run fast when you're pregnant and nursing a baby. That's all. Because it's not because it's bad to be pregnant and have a baby. Unless you're a man or something, but anyway. But pray your flight will not be on the winter or on a Sabbath day. That tells you we've got Israel in the land under the law again, you know. For then, this is the second half of the trib, and Jesus calls it the tribulation, the great one, the last half after the Antichrist has desecrated the temple, has, has grown his fangs, he's no longer pretending to be a priest candidate, he's taken over the world, and he's trying to be a replacement for Christ Jesus himself. Um, then there'll be a tribulation, there'll be trouble, uh, in the world, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world, nor now, nor ever will again. This is as bad as it's going to get. And unless those days would be cut short. Now, what's going to cut short? What's going to cut short the progress of human history during the tribulation? What's going to cut short? Can you can you see that? Second advent of Christ. It's going to be a supernatural. It's not going to be a UN resolution or an act of Congress or a government shutdown. It's not going to be anything like that. It's going to be supernatural, undeniable return of Christ. So he says, um, then there'll be tribulation like uh, never seen before. It'll be beyond human remedy. It'll be ultra evil. Unless those days were to be supernaturally cut short by Jesus' second coming, as he's going to describe here, uh, no flesh should be saved. Everybody would die just from the, the fallout of the, the uh, nuclear exchanges. But for the sake of the elect... So that they who survive to the end, it's going to be a small percentage of believers who are going to physically survive all of that seven-year tribulation. But there will be physical believers in Jesus. He calls them sheep at the end of this sermon. They're going to be alive in their physical bodies when he comes back, second advent. And they're going to enter the kingdom in physical bodies. We're going to be in resurrected bodies. Which means we're not going to be stuck on earth necessarily. I think we'll be able to go all throughout the universe. Uh, but um, that's two different categories. Then, if anyone says to you, here's the Christ, here's the guy in the suit, the third guy from the left is the Christ, he's not going to walk up. He's going to come out of the sky undeniably. Don't believe them. For false Christ, even then, <laughs> will arise. You can't believe how depraved people are. And will show great signs and wonders. They'll be able to do satanic power and miracles. So if possible, to mislead even the elect. But they won't just mislead the elect. It's not possible. Beyond I've told you in advance, I've got all this under control. So if they say to you, behold, the Christ is in the wilderness, go out there to him, you know. 
Don't go out there. He's in the inner rooms. You've got to have some kind of secret esoteric knowledge. Don't believe it. Because when I come back to end human history on God's terms, look at verse 27, it's going to be like lightning. Lightning is visible. It's powerful. It can be terrifying. It's certainly very impressive. It's visible. It's going to be, in Jesus' case, supernatural, undeniable. It won't be you know, sneaking in in the back door. He's going to be him coming out of heaven. This is not the rapture at second advent. As lightning comes from the east and flashes in the west, it's visible, it's visible, it's visible. You can see it. It's real. You know it's coming. It's in the sky coming down. So will the coming of the Son of Man be that ends the end of the age that leads to the kingdom. And immediately at the end or after it, or at the end phase of the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give us light, and the stars, now the word star in the Greek, Tim, this is originally Greek, astere means anything bright in the sky. Today we use the word star. Somebody said, you know, stars and preachers are a lot alike. They're both big balls of hot gas. I didn't like that joke myself. But, uh, yeah, we use the word star for like the sun and things like that. We've got fusion reactions, you know, all, all the time. But that's not the way the, the Bible uses the term. Astaire means anything bright in the sky. And Revelation talks about uh, meteors, 100 pounds uh, in weight, falling from the sky. That would include, that would be an astaire here. But he, notice he says, uh, the sun will be darkened because there's going to be so much pollution in the air and fallout from the nuclear exchanges. The moon will not give us light. The stars, the things that are bright in the sky will fall. You know, Alpha Centauri can't fall into the earth. It's too big. It worked the other way. But these 100-pound meteors is what he's talking about. Uh, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken because the earth's going to shake. And when you're on a platform as an observer and you're on something shaking, everything's shaking. That's what he's saying there. And then the sign, the actual visible reality of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Um, because by and large they rejected him. And they'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory, as Daniel 7.13 says, with power and great glory. It's the second advent of Christ. What's the sign of this? Uh, tell us about the end of the age and your coming. He's talking about his coming in power and glory. And then he'll send forth the angels with a great trumpet. They'll gather together his elect from the four winds that will actually be visible, physical. Uh, believers have survived the the rigors of the seven-year tribulation, and Jesus is going to gather them together when he comes back. Um, by the way, if the, that content there in verse 29 sounds kind of interesting and maybe familiar. It should be. Look at Revelation 6. And when you look at the book of Revelation 6 through 18, it's a description of this end-of-the-age uh, dynamic, the tribulation period leading to the second advent of Christ. And... Revelation 6, please. Verse 12, I think it is. But when you read Revelation 6 through 18, you find out there are three series of judgments. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. And there are various ways they're understood to relate to one another. I'm convinced the seals cover the whole seven years. The trumpets cover the last half. The bowls are so severe, one-third of the drinking water drying up, they only last the last week or so. But the idea is you get this ratcheting up of the intensity of the problems on earth. And in connection with that, look, for instance, at, remember what Jesus just said 
in verse 29, the sun, the moon, the stars, earth shaking. Look at what the sixth, and the, and the seventh uh, uh, seal judgment is silence in heaven, so the story can go on, so it's, it's a non-active judgment. So this is the last of the first set of judgments, the seals, the um, trumpets, and the bowls. Yeah. But look at Revelation 6.12 with what Jesus just said in mind. And I looked, and he broke the sixth seal on the title deed to planet Earth, and there was a great earthquake, and the whole earth is shaking, not just tectonic slides sliding in Oklahoma. The whole earth is shaking, and if you're standing on an earth that's shaking, the skies are shaking from your vantage point. It's phenomenological language, the way it looks. And the sun became black as sackcloth, as you're looking at it through the atmosphere, which is now opaque, uh, made of hair. And the whole moon became like blood, not Red blood cells, but pink, reddish is the idea. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth. Does that sound familiar? And now remember, the book of Revelation is written after the Lord gave this um, discourse. But back in chapter 24, 29, Jesus says, at the end of the tribulation, in connection with my second advent, just before the second advent, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give us light, the stars will fall, so on and so forth. Sounds like the same thing. It is the same thing. Stars of the sky fell, Revelation 6.13, as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. Sky was split apart like a scroll. That sounds like a big nuclear explosion to me. And every mountain and island was moved. Everything's, all the tectonic plates are moving. The whole planet's moving. And notice, this is just in connection with the second advent, just the attendant circumstance, just before the second advent. And then here he comes, and look what happens. I guess everybody's going to come to faith now. Everybody's going to want to receive Christ, right? Now, the kings of the earth, Revelation 6.15, the great men, the commanders, the rich, the strong, every slave, every free man, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks. They're holding on the rocks. It's like the first time I heard about Earth Day. You know, the, the first time it was on Easter, and I thought, Earth Day? Are you kidding me? People are celebrating Earth Day? Sounds like Earth Day. Here's the last... Uh, <laughs> celebration of Earth Day as Christ is coming back they're crying out to the rocks not praying to God not calling out in repentance fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne that's God the Father and the wrath of the Lamb here he comes for the great day of their wrath has come they're not atheists they're just total reprehensible rejectors you know so hardened it's unbelievable uh, and it's interesting I won't take the time but if you look at the last trumpet and the last bold judgment, they all sound exactly alike. They all kind of line up on that. So, go back to Matthew 24. Yeah, so we've seen uh, the glory of the Antichrist contrasted with the glory of the Christ. And now, and it's always one on this slide, our Matthew 24, 27 through 31 is right there in connection with the, the, the last version of each one of those judgments in the second advent of Christ. And you could even kind of title that diagram the end of the age according to Matthew 24, 25. Let's look at the application as we begin to close here. And you notice so much of this message is wrapped around about implications, applications. So don't tell me prophecy isn't practical. It's inherently practical. But just the Lord structures this thing, so it's all about uh, application. And, you know, I've actually taught this about five or six times over the years in either Wednesday nights, small groups, or from the pulpit. Uh, so I'm going to, and also, like a time, I'm going to kind of summarize this. 
But let me just say that the application of this discourse is believers are to live now. Even church age believers, we're not in the tribulation now. It seems, seems like it some days. But we're to live now in light of the certain and inevitable victory in return of our Lord Jesus Christ by embracing and living out kingdom values. And we talked about the Sermon on the Mount and then the Sermon on the Other Mount, right? One of the key applications of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's basically the bottom line for the Olivet Discourse, too. So you kind of get this, just everything, the whole circle kind of falls on itself and it all makes sense. And so he has uh, statements that emphasize two things. The importance of prioritizing God's kingdom as we wait, embracing divine viewpoint, not human viewpoint, and then a bottom line. And let me summarize this briefly. Uh, look at verse 32. Jesus says, now, um, the parable, listen to, learn from the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know the summer is near. So you too, when you see all these things, if you're a believer informed by scripture, living in the early phases of the tribulation, that's what he's talking about, tribulation, second advent, I'm not talking about rapture, church age. Then you need to buckle your seatbelt because it's not going to get much better for, for a while. So you too, when you see these things, you need to realize Jesus is right at the door. Second advent, the climax is coming. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Let's go on to the next verse. Heaven and earth. No. Listen, this is not a problem. When he says, this generation will not pass away, people want to say, well, he's talking about the generation of Abraham, uh, Abraham, uh, Peter, James, and John, right? Matthew. He's talking about the generation. What is he saying? When you, prophetic, when you, talking to you, but to, but to the audience that will actually be on the ground when this happens. When you, on the ground, as a believer, see the early phases of the rise of the Antichrist, buckle your seatbelt, and that generation not going to pass away. This whole thing's going to be gone in seven, seven years or less, depending on when you get on the ship, you know, kind of thing, when you come to faith. So I think that's very important. So don't let anybody tell you, that they made a mistake or something on that, and yet people who should know better, who don't read the context, say it all the time, and so that's, that's important to look at that. But then you go from that um, statement that we can trust in the ultimate promise of the, the victory to several sets of parables emphasizing uh, facets of living in hope, living in light of the inevitable victory of Christ. Don't embrace human viewpoint, misinformation about the end times, be faithful to the Lord and active for his kingdom while you wait, even if you're a college student, long way from home in Stillwater. Right? See that Liberty Bowl? We're going to get to Liberty Bowl before we finish tonight, by the way. Or this morning, tonight. This morning, isn't it? Uh, be spiritually alert and aware as you wait. Be actively using your gifts. Don't give up because the Antichrist is coming and it's going to get really bad. It's still worth it, right? And then the bottom line. The bottom line is so important. Let's look at the statement of affirmation that we're all going to have a personal reckoning with the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's scary, but it's wonderful if you've um, got him as Savior and you're loving him. Look at uh, chapter 25, verse 31. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, at the second advent, ending the end of the age, establishing his kingdom on earth, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. I take it on earth literally for a thousand years. Not all Christians believe that. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he'll separate them from one another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. That's the sheep and the goats. 
And they put the sheep on his right, so they're all conservatives. And the goats on the left, they're all liberals. I'm just telling you what it means. Then the king, and he's talking about himself in the third person, will say to those on his right, these are believers, Come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger, invite you in, see you naked, clothe you? When did we see you sick? When did we see you in prison come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, believers who have survived the tribulation in in their physical body entering the kingdom, to the extent that you did it to one of these brethren of mine that were persecuted and imprisoned. A little bit off the subject, but you know, in Peter, in Hebrews, you've got exhortations to visit those in prison. Okay? And everybody who starts a prison ministry cites those verses. And that's not my calling. I have been in jail, have been in prison, not for any offenses I committed personally. But to do ministry, that's not really my calling. I'll spend a lot of time in those places. Although even just getting my background check for, uh, like one involved back then going into jail. But, uh, it was, that was a trip, you know, but, um, but listen, those passages in Hebrews, for instance, are not talking about general prison ministry. Even though I'm, I'm all for general prison ministry. That's not what God's called me to do. He also didn't call me to open a soup kitchen. I'm all for soup kitchens. He's called me to do other things, right? I do everything for you, but I can't. You know, I do the best I can. But um, what? Who's he talking about when he says visit people in prison? Saint Hebrews, Christians who are in prison because they're Christians, right? He's saying don't forget the persecuted Christians. Okay, same kind of thing here. The vast majority—I don't know percentage—I'm going to say ninety-five percent of believers living in the tribulation are going to be jailed, tortured, executed. Uh, face all kinds of problems. You're going to have a small percentage, hopefully a fairly large, large number, that survive. He's talking to them, and he's saying, hey, believers like Jesus and like other believers. And to the extent they can help other believers, the only people who will help believers in the tribulation, especially the second half when the Antichrist takes over, will be other believers. Those will be the only people who will associate with them at all, at any level, Right? Because they're all, by definition, guilty of capital crimes. So he's not saying you're saved by good works, and he's not saying that uh, the next latest, greatest trillion-dollar social uh, program that the government wants to pass is an example of Jesus and us caring for the least among us. He's talking about helping the uh, untouchables, the outcasts of believers who are being persecuted in tribulation, those who helped them to the extent they could, that's just a function of them as believers kind of showing what they really are inside. And the flip side is also true kind of thing. So don't let anybody snow you on that. Go to the very last verse. So we've got folks on the right, folks on the left, believers who are commended for doing what believers do, praying for and helping other believers to the extent they can, whereas all the unbelievers have turned on Christ and Christians. These 
on the left who are unbelievers will go away to eternal punishment, everlasting punishment, but the righteous will enjoy everlasting life. Prophecy is practical. This is Revelation 6 through 19, really, in just two chapters. But uh, let me emphasize one way it is so practical. Knowing in advance how things will turn out gives you a stability and peace and leads can lead to a joy you can't have the end of the way. And I give you this example. Uh, on Monday night, OSU played in the Liberty Bowl in Memphis, Tennessee. They played Mizzou. They played Missouri. Good football team. And uh, we watched it, and they scared us. Didn't look like we were going to hold on at the end. We did. Won the game. Sometimes the good guys get what they deserve, okay? That was Monday. Friday night, um, I was kind of going through my recordings on TV and racing the stuff I haven't seen or didn't want to see or already seen. And I realized I'd left the OSU football game on there. And I thought, I'm going to go back and, and watch the, 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 the last half of the fourth quarter just to see if we can do that again. Because <laughs> it didn't look like it was going to happen. And I sat there and I realized this is exactly what the Olivet Discourse is basically saying, okay? I, I still, my heart still jumped a couple of times there, you know. I was still very engaged, but I was able to relax and enjoy the whole experience. <laughs> As Christians, there's no reason to panic, man. Don't panic. Help is on the way. God's got this. He's got a sovereign program. Uh, he didn't ask you if you like it or if it's going to be on your time schedule because it's not. Just relax, Bobby. It's all going to work out. Don't worry. Something's going to happen, and ultimately something really good's going to happen. So I thought by knowing what was going to happen at the end, OSU was going to win. Krista, can you relate to this? I was able to enjoy watching it the second time in a way I didn't the first time because it was un- unknowable. Didn't know if they are going to win or not. I just assumed the worst, right? So don't assume the worst because help us on the way. And when correctly understood, it relieves stress. I thank you. Let's close in prayer. <laughs> Father, this is a fearsome passage. It is a tough read. There's a lot of bad things happening to good people and a lot of gore and blood and carnage and evil and and, and just hor- horrific things. So we shudder to, to giggle, and yet it is so so such a blessing, Lord Jesus, to know you've got this. You're going to end um, the ultra-violence of the domain of human history on your time frame, exactly when it needs to happen, and we can rest in that. We know you're going to win, and we can uh, look at everything and the whole process of getting there through a different lens. doesn't mean that when we get cut, we're not going to bleed. doesn't mean when we suffer a loss, we're not going to grieve, but it does mean we can look at it uh, in the framework of the ultimate uh, big plan and help us to have a bigger conception of reality as we start this new year in part because we've read through and surveyed this teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his